Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden where we're going on a huge tangent. My name is Chris, the leader of today's tangent in many ways. And I'm Elsa and I'm just along for the ride. We're going to do something new this time, telling you the story of something happening at the periphery of Swedish history and events in the early 1400s, but still... Margareta and King Erik were undoubtedly keeping their eyes on this because we are going to talk about the Battle of Grunwald and the utter defeat of the Teutonic Knights. Yes, so that's not really a bit of a spoiler considering we mentioned this in the latest regular episode, episode 75, released at the exact same time as this episode. But it won't actually give you anything extra than this episode. In fact, it's the exact opposite. This episode is the expansion pack to that regular episode when it comes to everything to do with this battle. We only touched on the battle and its consequences in the regular episode because, quite frankly, there was enough going on, what with the war between Denmark and Holstein, as well as us finally seeing the end of Margareta. But seeing as this is so interesting and at least a tiny bit relevant, we wanted to give it the attention we felt it deserved in just a bit of a standalone episode to the side of that main narrative in what we're calling Tangent Time, the Battle of Grunwald. The idea of this tangent is to cover a pivotal event on the edge of Swedish history. This doesn't involve any Swedes, but comes just a few years after the Teutonic Knights played a huge role in our story. This event will change the course of their history, and thus it will impact Swedish history going forward. We have no idea if we're going to do another Tangent Time episode like this in the future. We haven't gotten that far yet, but we liked this story so much, so we felt we had to cover it. However, just because it is a standalone episode, it doesn't mean we won't do a Swedish phrase, which we do at the start of every episode. And so this time it is... Tomatuna skramla mess. <laughs> yeah, this is a fun one. It means... Empty barrels rattle the most. Something maybe the herring traders down in Skåne in the Middle Ages uh, would say, at least uh, some of the time. But what the phrase actually means is that those with the least to contribute are usually the loudest, or people with the least to say talk the most. Well, we've all probably been in situations or can think of people where that applies. Uh, but that's probably it. A relatively easy one there. I don't think we need to go into it more than that. So let's do a bit of a background and catch up on what the Teutonic Knights have been doing for the last few decades before this battle. Uh, as before, we will switch between calling them the Teutonic Knights, the German Order, the Teutonic Order, and just the Germans in this episode, as they were all names for them. Nobody really has a particular preference reference in uh, from the two of us so we'll just use all of them instead of being a bit repetitive i would like to call them the teutonic germans <laughs> yeah. but, but that sounds more like a rock band yeah it does but yes in episode 71 we covered how poland and lithuania came together under the leadership of jagela as king of poland and vitautus as grand duke of lithuania this was after a number of lithuanian civil wars 
betrayals and the involvement of the knights on one side or the other, and Jigela becoming Christian. It was a right mess, but at the end of it all, Vitaltus and Jigela were united in one fact, and that was that they couldn't let the Teutonic Order take any more of their territory or impinge on either of their sovereign lands. However, they had given away some of this land to the Order as part of negotiations at the end of the 1390s. This was the territory of Samogitia, which still had strong pagan traditions. Viteltus had promised the Order the land as part of his various plots with them against Jugela. Even though he reconciled with Jugela, the Order still wanted the land and they got it in 1398. The semi-independent northern part of the Teutonic Order, which was called the Livonian Order, they were especially happy about this for two reasons. They had been fighting Lithuania for this land for years, and it also ensured they would have a land bridge to the Teutonic Order. If you look at a map of Europe nowadays, you see why it was important. Very, very roughly, the Livonian Order had Latvia, and the Teutonic Order had the coast of modern-day Poland, as well as Kaliningrad. Samogitia was essentially what is now the Lithuanian West Coast, splitting these two areas in half. Yeah, that's a pretty decent enough explanation. Uh, we know it's definitely not the exact orders, so no angry letters, please, but it's uh, certainly close enough for this podcast. But yes, the knights had this new territory, and as part of the treaty, Vitaltus has to help the order build two castles as compensation for two he burnt down during one of the Lithuanian civil wars. The knights then moved in to take control of Samogitia, but the locals there were anything but impressed with their new overlords. It didn't take long before a full-blown rebellion was underway, and those two brand new castles were promptly burnt down in 1401. Oops! <laughs> Oops, indeed. The knights suspected that Vitautus was behind this uprising, or was at least helping it, but they needed to be a bit careful. If they wanted to attack him, it could force him even closer into the arms of Jugela, and this was something they didn't want at any cost. They were trying to keep this new alliance as divided as possible. The knights had actually been at peace with Poland for decades now, and it wouldn't be ideal if they had to fight with them too. Eventually, after some political wrangling involving Jugela's brother, this erupted into full-blown war between Lithuania and the knights. The knights tried to complain to the Pope, saying that Vitalis had broken not one, not two, but three treaties signed between them. However, the Pope responded by ordering the knights not to attack Lithuania. Oh, uh, oops again. <laughs> Unfortunately for Vitautas, though, he was having problems elsewhere in his territory and needed to divide his attention. This meant that a new treaty was signed in 1404, where Vitautas essentially confirmed the knights' right to Samogitia, agreeing he would help them put down any rebels and that he wouldn't allow any Samogitian refugees to escape to Lithuania. The knights basically got everything they wanted with this. This perhaps wasn't a surprise, as Konrad von Jungingen was still in charge of the order, and he was a cunning guy when it came to treaties and negotiations. 
The peace lasts a while and both sides build up their defences, but actually work together in various campaigns Vitautas has in the east against Novgorod and other groups of people out there. Unfortunately, this peaceful part of the relationship ends with the death of Konrad von Jungingen. As we mentioned in episode 71, his successor, who happens to be his brother, Ulrich von Jungingen, was not too inclined to be friendly with Lithuania, and he definitely didn't have his brother's tact for diplomacy, nor was he patient or level-headed. Basically, he had all the worst qualities for a leader, and the leadership of the knights disregarded Conrad's advice to appoint someone else, but they would go on to regret this. One of Ulrich's first tasks was to sort out Gotland, and he promptly gave up the island for a big bag of cash, perhaps knowing that he would need this in the near future. In 1409, the Samogitians rebel once more, and this time Viteltis sends some of his commanders to help the rebel armies, so he doesn't even try to hide his involvement. The Teutonic Knights end up retreating back to Prussia, and von Jungingen uses some of that Gotland cash to start recruiting mercenaries from around Germany and Central Europe. The Poles, weary that the Germans will soon be back, inform von Jungingen that if he attacked Lithuania as part of an attempt to subdue the rebels, that would be counted as an attack against Poland. The Germans were surprised at this, as there had been peace between Poland and the Knights for almost three generations. Despite his ultimatum and the fact that the Germans are massing for war, Jugela seems to have misread the seriousness of the situation and the knight's determination to put down the revolt, because he even went on a hunting trip and was therefore quite surprised when Ulrich declares war on both Poland and Lithuania and marched into Poland. The war starts with some skirmishing and burning of villages and towns in the border regions, with the Germans first capturing the town of Bidgocht, before the Poles retook it soon after. However, Jagela wasn't ready for a war and soon ended up asking for peace. Von Jungingen was heartened by this. His tactic of bold aggression seemed to be the way to get to a longer-term peace on his terms. The king of Bohemia, Wenceslas IV, managed to negotiate a nine-month truce. During this truce, both sides prepared for the second round of a war they were confident was coming. There was a flurry of diplomatic activity, though, with the knights trying to get as much assistance for the future war as possible. They even paid Wenceslas 60,000 florins to make sure he reiterate the view that the knights were the true rulers of Samogitia, and they then gave the king of Hungary 300,000 ducats for some military assistance, mainly because they knew he wanted to try and claim the territory of Moldova, uh, where I was last summer, for himself, as uh, that was part of the uh, Polish Empire. The Hungarian king then suggested that if Vitautas wanted to, uh, people might start treating him as the king of Lithuania instead of the Grand Duke if he abandons Jugela. Vitautas didn't do this, and the Polish-Lithuanian alliance only grew stronger because of these outside pressures, exactly what von Juningen wanted to avoid. The leader of Lithuania did manage to get a pledge of neutrality from the Livonian order up north, though, showing the level of independence this group had from their brother order of the main group of the Teutonic Knights. 
Amusingly, the Hungarian king was more than happy to take this big bag of cash, but constantly stored and eventually actually sent no aid to the knights. The German preparations made it clear in the Allies' mind that this would only be solved by war. Von Jungingen's act of aggression was, as historian William Urban puts it, a fatal leap into the unknown. He had gambled that the Poles wouldn't support the Lithuanians or that he would be able to remove Poland from the war quickly. Neither had happened. As Urban brilliantly put it, Ulrich should have let sleeping dogs lie, but instead the hot-blooded Grandmaster kicked them in the ribs. So, as the end of the truce approaches, Jagela and Vitautas meet in Poland to agree on a common strategy. They would combine their armies and make one joint dash to the Teutonic Order's capital at Marienburg as soon as the truce expired. This surprised the knights when they set off in the summer of 1410. Yes, because the knights were preparing to fight a two-front war, fight the Poles and the Lithuanians separately, so they weren't really ready for this giant attack. They especially weren't ready for the Polish and Lithuanian forces to cross the Vistula River by building a giant pontoon bridge, which sounds like a really amazing feat of military engineering, and really put the knights on the back foot. However, the knights did eventually regroup and managed to put up a defensive line at the next major river, the Dwenster. And so instead of crossing this river, the Allied army headed east to skirt around the river and attack the German capital over land, instead of having to try to cross the river under enemy fire. The Germans followed them, and the two sides ended up tramping through forests and woods for a while as they both headed out east. Then something happened that tipped von Jungingen over the edge. Uh, up till now, he was merely just happy to follow and make sure that they didn't get to his capital, but then something happened that really annoyed him. Amongst Jugela's army were a few thousand Tartar warriors, led by a future Khan of the Tartars, who had taken these men across the steppes out west, and they were now fighting with the Poles and Lithuanians against the knights. They were, however, extremely hard for Jugela to control. Yes, and during this part of the pursuit, they had looted and burnt the frontier town of Gillenburg, or Dabrówno, as it's called in Polish, infuriating the leader of the Germans once his scouts informed him of the event. He then put all caution to the wind and was determined to strike at the enemy at the earliest possibility. The description of this pillaging and burning in a German chronicle is quite intense. They struck dead, young and old, and with the heathens, the Tartars, committed so many murders as was unholy, dishonouring churches and maidens and women, cutting off their breasts and torturing them and driving them off to serfdom. Also, the heathens committed great blasphemies on the sacraments whenever they came into the churches. Um, sounds pretty bad. Uh, and that meant that, yeah, von Jungingen sent the Germans to chase after the Poles and eventually they caught up with them. So what happened next? Well, first we should look at the two armies in a bit more detail. The Polish-Lithuanian army wasn't just made up of men from these two areas. Jagela had also recruited some mercenaries from Bohemia and Moravia, who were the best in the business. 
He had his main troops of heavily armoured Polish knights, as well as other Polish cavalry, and a few thousand foot soldiers, some of which were archers. There were also cavalry from Smolensk, Starobdub, and the Tatars we just mentioned. These men were particularly feared due to their many stories of Tartar cruelty in the region, something exemplified by the recent conduct right before the battle. In addition to this, there were cavalry units from Moldavia, or Moldova, in the 21st century, and of course a large force of Lithuanians, who were the most experienced in fighting the Teutonic Order. All of this added up to an estimated 30,000 men. Vitautus led the Lithuanian troops and some of the Poles, mainly the people from Smolensk. Jagela was quite old at this point, so the Royal Marshal of Poland, who has a name so intense that we won't even try pronouncing it, led the Polish troops on his behalf, whilst Jagela remained at the rear observing what was about to happen. Opposing the Allies were perhaps 20,000 soldiers of the Teutonic Order. About half were well-armoured knights on specially trained horses, plus heavy cavalry. The other half of the army were mercenaries, a few crusaders and other soldiers. Two military commanders of the Order led these two halves, whilst von Jungingen commanded the Strategic Reserve Overall, the Teutonic Order's equipment, experience and confidence spoke for itself, before you even mention their formidable and almost unbeaten record of the recent years. This was a very strong fighting force. Numbers vary wildly from a range of historians from all backgrounds and eras of history, but more modern analysis put it somewhat close to the numbers quoted above, but everyone seemed to agree that the knights were outnumbered three to two. Von Jungingen wanted to try and take the Poles by surprise, but he couldn't make his way through the woods fast enough, and by the time he was within sight of them, it was daylight. He wasn't going to try and retreat and try another day, so he needed to reposition himself. So he lined his troops up on a long field between the villages of Tannenberg and Grunwald. Because of this, some historians call this battle the Battle of Tannenberg instead of the Battle of Grunwald, including William Urban, who we read a lot during our research for this episode. Seeing the Germans approach, Jagela didn't exactly rush out to face them. He knew that the knights would like to wait for the Poles to attack first before launching into a decisive counterattack, something that was a quite common tactic for disciplined armies like the Teutonic Knights. A Swedish historian who spent decades looking into this battle and the campaign, Sven Ekdal, has suggested that von Jungingen wanted to have the sun shine in the face of his enemy, but as the day dragged on, it became clear that it would cross the sky and end up blinding his own men. So that was a bit awkward. What was more awkward was that the Germans were lined up in battle formation, with no food or water for his men, who were tired after charging after the Poles overnight in revenge for the sacking of Gilgenburg. The day grew hotter and everyone was wearing wool and warm clothing. Jugela probably smiled as he kept watch on the Germans from within the cool shade of the forest. 
Yeah, because the poles are just waiting still in the forest, just waiting uh, for the time that is about to come. Both armies would have been a real sight to behold, as this is one of the biggest battles of medieval history. Armies just don't tend to meet when they're this large. Each unit had their own banners, something that would become crucial later in the day. Jagalas was a white eagle on a red background, the commander from Krakow had a bear with a crown, and the royal marshal had a lion head breathing fire. Not only fun to look at, these were important symbols for the commanders at the back to use to work out which units were where on the battlefield and what progress was being made. Urban describes the site in vivid language. It is unlikely that any participant ever forgot the sight of the armies forming up for battle, each in three deep lines, a process that was stage-managed to encourage and intimidate, with music, shouting and singing, infantry filed into place to music, while artillery was hauled to whatever rice was closest. Messengers rode back and forth, ordering units to shift their positions, and officers exhorted their men to fight valiantly. That's a very awesome quote there. Meanwhile, like we said, Jagela was in the forest, and he was actually quite busy taking mass after mass in his tent. He was a very pious man, and so would have been heartened to hear his men sing their battle hymn, which was, Virgin Mother of God, Maria Chosen by God. Lady, implore your son, Mother Mary, to love us, to assist us, Lord have mercy. Uh, I'm sure the original Polish, which we have, but absolutely will not attempt to pronounce, uh, sounded a bit better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. It was at this point that von Jungingen sent heralds to the camp of Jigela, carrying two swords, which they presented to the king. This was a Western tradition, and it's an insult. It was implying that he would need extra weapons to defend himself in the upcoming battle. The heralds also accused the king of hiding his men away in the forest, refusing to come out and fight. Jagela was already starting to plan his attack and leave the forest anyway, so he just ordered the signal to be given to start the battle shortly after this. In fact, some of his men were already moving into place when the messages from the Germans arrived. The battle then started slowly as they both started to move towards each other. The Lithuanians were taking the right flank of the Allied army alongside the Tartars, and they scattered the German skirmishers standing before them. They then settled down trying to draw out the German cavalry. This didn't work per se, but they didn't have to wait long for a more momentous action. After a moment, the two sides simply gave a great cry and rushed at each other, the Germans having a slight advantage as they were running or riding downhill from the top of the slight ridge. Um, Amazingly, there were supposedly six large oak trees in the middle of the battlefield, with some onlookers hiding up in the branches watching the battle as it went on. (laughs) That's crazy. I mean, what funny detail, but also terrifying... Now, it is here where the details start to become a bit hazy due to the various national and historical accounts of the fighting. Urban relates an account similar to the traditional narrative from the Polish historian Jan Lugos. Von Jungingen concentrated his best forces to his left, facing the Lithuanians and the Tartars. 
the Germans initially made some progress and suddenly a breakthrough. The Lithuanian cavalry and their Tartar comrades started to flee, raising their horses off the field as German cavalry smashed into them. The German crusaders and their mercenaries couldn't have believed their luck, so a lot of them set off after them, eager to take prisoners or loot the bodies of the dead. At the same time, fighting continued along the rest of the line, with the Polish knights and troops engaging the Germans all the way along the battlefield. The left flank of the Poles started to gradually push back the Germans. Vitautus was on the battlefield, not being one of those Lithuanian soldiers who were fleeing. Instead, he rode up and down the line, encouraging troops and making adjustments as the Germans threatened to make more breakthroughs. The din of crashing swords and shrieking horses would have been deafening, because this was mainly a cavalry battle, with the majority of both sides involved with cavalry, with thousands and thousands of horses running around and many of them dying and shrieking in pain and fright. The German knights pursuing the retreating Lithuanian cavalry soon returned to the battlefield and attempted to surround the remainder of Vitautas' forces still fighting, the majority of these belonging to the Banner of Smolensk. This force fought extremely bravely, fighting against huge odds. It was then that the supposedly routed Lithuanian and Tartar cavalry charged back into the battle, smashing into the rear of the German knights. Aha, William the Conqueror-style fake retreat there, it seems. Exactly, or even a Tartar-style fake retreat, as this is a famous tactic from this group of warriors. So famous, in fact, that a German mercenary, once he knew the Tartars were on the side of the Poles, sent a letter to von Jungingen before the battle, warning him that the Lithuanian army would likely fake a retreat to try and trick the Germans. Clearly, this warning wasn't acted on, as that was exactly what happened, and the Lithuanian attack started to turn the battle in their favour. This wasn't to say that the Germans were going to give in, though. In fact, von Jungingen gambled everything on a huge final charge with his most experienced troops and reserves. He gathered 16 banners of men in a wedge formation and charged personally into the fight, trying to aim right for where he thought Jagela himself would be located. Seeing the Germans form up for this charge, Vitautus urged Jugela to send in his last remaining forces, which just managed to get in in time and stop the charge intended to kill the leadership in one dramatic swoop. They got so close, in fact, that the Polish royal banner was supposedly briefly captured during the fighting, and one German knight got close enough to swing at the king. He was only stopped when the king's secretary, a young priest called Zbigniew Olsniecki, grabbed a broken spear from the ground and smashed the knight on the head, knocking him to the ground. Jagela himself tapped the knight on the shoulder with his spear, the medieval sign for declaring someone a prisoner, but his bodyguards didn't waste any time and just rushed forward to kill him instead. Probably better safe than sorry. 
Jagela then tried to make his secretary a knight right away, <laughs> like right there in the middle of the battlefield. And apparently he had to refuse many times, saying he was a servant of God and wanted to serve Christ instead of a, you know, a human. Instead of annoying the king, this actually impressed him, and Jagela promised to make the man a bishop one day, and he would in fact go on to become one of Jagela's closest advisors after this battle. Uh, perhaps rightly so. Despite this, the battle is very much still raging on around them at this point, which is uh, quite amusing to think. Yeah, you can imagine some of the bodyguards saying just, come on, your majesty, there's a battle going on. You know, you can, you can name your knights and bishops later. <laughs> exactly. This uh, failed charge by the Teutonic Order was the beginning of the end for the Germans. Von Jungingen and his top commanders were surrounded and almost all of them were cut down by the Polish Royal Household Cavalry, Von Jungingen himself dying in this action. It's at this point where our good buddies, the Lizard Union or the Lizard League, return to the story. They were a group of knights from West Prussia, and whilst part of the Teutonic Order, they were a bit disillusioned with the way the order was going and were known to be relatively pro-Poland. Their banner was lowered and they quickly streamed away from the battle. Uh, they clearly had enough. This, combined with the death of their commander, meant that the German army started to flee. But for many of them, it was far too late. Some were cut down immediately, whilst others tried to make it back to their wagons and caravans waiting behind the battle. There, they encountered the camp followers, the women, the bakers, carpenters, and all the hangers-on, who were actually looting their own camp. I think that's like the third big oops there, because yeah. they just thought, oh yeah, well, the battle's over, we might as well take all those dead knights' fancy stuff. <laughs> The Poles killed the slowest and forced the other Germans to flee, some of them actually drowning when trying to cross a large pond which was nearby the battlefield. Those that did make it back to the wagons tried to turn the area into a mini-defensive fort, but once the Lithuanians arrived and teamed up with the Poles, it was all over for them too. The Germans were completely overrun before long, with many prisoners taken, although a lot of these, the ones too poor to pay any decent ransom, were likely executed shortly after. So, yeah, not a great fun time for these Germans. By the time the night came, the battle was over, and the last Germans were dead, had fled, or surrendered. One notable prisoner was a German knight who'd been making a living crusading into Lithuania over the past decades, one time even getting as far as the capital Vilnius. He could have been ransomed for a huge amount of money, but Vitautus was completely fed up with this man causing trouble, so had him killed on the spot. That was it. The battle was over. Von Jungen's body was found and put on display for the King of Poland, who supposedly remarked, here is the man who yet this morning thought himself more mighty than all the others in the world. The German leader was just one of many, many dead. The oldest estimate is from a few years afterwards and said that 8,000 men died on both sides. But it isn't really sure if this meant each side or in total. This is also essentially the lowest estimate of the total casualties. Many historians think it was much more in reality. This was a gigantic battle in terms of those taking part, but also in the number of casualties. 
medieval battles aren't supposed to really happen like this. You normally run away and hide in castles or have small skirmishes, but this was different because von Jungingen really wanted to avenge the sacking of the nearby village and, in general, was a very aggressive and eager commander. But this was his downfall. It was indeed. Uh, for the knights as well, it was a complete disaster. The entire leadership of the order had been wiped out. The Grand Master, the Marshal, the leader of the army, the treasurer, and over 200 knights had been killed. This was a devastating blow beyond doubt, regardless of the casualties on the Polish-Lithuanian side, which weren't insignificant, but the damage to the knights was much worse. In a strange link to Sweden, we know from later documents that some of the German prisoners taken by Poland were moved to Lublin, where they were forced to build a church to St. Birgitta. <laughs> oh, wow. That's really interesting. It really is. Uh, I wasn't expecting her, of all people, to appear in this episode. We'll now cover the aftermath of this battle very quickly, as uh, this has already turned into quite a long tangent, but uh, we need to follow it up a little bit. The Poles and the Lithuanians, after the battle, march on the Order's capital and start besieging it. The Order is now led by an acting Grand Master, who actually managed to rally troops and call in allies like the Livonian Order and the King of Hungary to help, and so eventually Jagela has to call off the siege and go home. It probably didn't help that about halfway through the siege, Vitalta said he was giving up and going home with his part of the army. Uh, not great for morale. A peace treaty was then signed the following year, which was actually a bit of a failure for Jagela and Vitautas. They gained no real territory, although they did get to keep Samogitia, but only for their lifetimes. They couldn't take anything from the knights, who managed to shore up their borders despite the huge loss. It was the long-term consequences that really did it for the knights, though, at the time, the peace treaty made it seem like everything was still up for grabs, but the hindsight we have now make all historians agree that this defeat was, as Urban puts it, an incurable wound from which the order would bleed to death. They had lost their aura of invincibility. Most of their best soldiers and leaders, plus loads of trained men and horses, were also gone. Their economy had been ruined, and to prepare for future wars, they had to really just rely on recruiting expensive mercenaries with money they didn't have. Whilst they survived the battle and even the war, the order would never again reach their previous power. And that's a really good summary, I think. Uh, during this time immediately after the battle, the new Grand Master blamed the Lizard Union for the defeat in a classic stab-in-the-back narrative. He said that if they hadn't lowered their banner at the critical moment, then surely the rest of the Germans would have fought on and eventually won the day. And as such, the Lizard Union's leader was swiftly executed by the knights. Mm. In some ways, he was the last casualty of the battle, if you don't count the death of the knight's reputation and the gradual slope of decline they would now be going on going forward. And with that, we end our biggest tangent yet. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I hope that was enjoyable. Uh, a bit of a standalone story that you could just dive in and listen to uh, without knowing too much of the context. But it's one that will shape European history for centuries to come and will result in Lithuania and Poland shoring up their relations and that entity will absolutely be returning to the story of Sweden in the future. This is one of the pivotal moments in both Lithuanian and Polish history and is one of the top things that people learn about in those countries. So if you uh, start reading about it or watching YouTube videos about it or whatever, you will encounter a lot of uh, proud and uh, interested Poles and Lithuanians. If you enjoyed this episode or enjoyed the concept of tangent time, then do let us know on social media or via email. We're Flatpack History of Sweden on Facebook and Twitter. And you can email flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. You can indeed. Uh, So do let us know what you think. As we said at the start, this could quite easily be a one-off and it's hard enough researching the regular episodes, so there's definitely no promises that this theme will continue. But you never know. Uh, We might find time for another lengthy tangent. But until then, we'll of course be continuing the regular narrative and we're back again in two weeks' time. So thank you for listening. See you next time. Hey, door. Goodbye. A young priest called Sbigin. A young. Sbinev Olesniki. Sbinev Olesniki. He was only stopped when the king's secretary, a young priest called Sbinev Olesniki, there they encountered the camp followers, the women's debate. <laughs> the women's. The women's. <laughs> They had lost their aura of invisibility, most of their best... Uh, Invincibility. Yeah, they're not invisible, is it? (laughs) I wish they were. I'd be (laughs) sick. (laughs)